The American Trappist monk, theologian, and poet Thomas Merton, a regular participant in interfaith work, once wrote, God speaks to us in three places, in scripture, in our deepest selves, and in the voice of the stranger. Here at Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry, we believe that, and we try to live that. How does our faith shape how we see the world? How does our personal faith tradition influence our opinions on the news of the day? In an age in which religion can sometimes be weaponized, how do we strive to find God speaking to each of us through each of us? Welcome to Intersections, a podcast designed to bring together a diversity of faithful people in Tulsa for dialogue on the issues that impact us all. This past weekend, we were all glued to our sources of news looking for information, praying for the hostages at Congregation Beth Israel in Colleyville, Texas, which had become another on a growing list of houses of worship visited by violence. In this case, like at Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, anti-Semitism was at the heart of the threat. That remains a horrific issue in this nation, a nation supposedly endowed with freedom of religion. I'm Chris Moore, pastor at Fellowship Congregational UCC and board chair for Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry. I'm joined today by Ali Ashimi, TMM's executive director and one of the most prominent Muslims in town, and Michael Weinstein, senior rabbi at Temple Israel. Hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So I don't know about you, but for me, the first news flashes came in on my phone about uh, a hostage and situation in Texas. And of course, like with school shootings or anything else like that, there's that first moment of, oh, really? Here's another one, right? And then you begin to see the details and you begin to dig a little deeper into that. And for for me, my first instinct, as it often is, is to reach out to my colleagues, in this case, to reach out to my uh, Jewish friends in town because I know what that impact does. I know what it does viscerally, even though you may not know anybody in that congregation, you may not have any connection to them whatsoever. There's still that sort of sense of an attack on one of us is an attack on on all of us. Rabbi, where were you when you first heard the news? I was actually at home. And of course, much as, as you said, the reaction, anytime you hear a house of worship under any type of attack, I remember where I was when Tree of Life shooting occurred. It's those moments where, where you're, you're taken aback. I thank God that the outcome of last Saturday was as, can I say, positive as yeah. it turned out to be because it could have taken a horrific turn. But it's in those moments where and I'm just flooded with emotion from outrage to fear to sadness to, I'll say, outrage again. Yeah. In this case, the rabbi of that congregation is a um, an old colleague of mine. I was We were in school together. Uh, really? He was a few years ahead of me, but... We've known one another for years, and it gets very real when there's a name that yeah. is a familiar one, someone you know. Right. Alia, where were you? I was driving in a blizzard, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I was driving from Minnesota in a blizzard, so I was completely oblivious to anything that was going on. Mm. Just had my eyes glued to the road and trying to make sure we were coming back safely. Good decision. And Yeah, yeah, right? And then just as soon as I got a few hours of sleep after we got in from a 17-hour drive— looked at my phone and saw these flashes on social media 
And of course, the first inkling is just being horrified with what had happened. And immediately after, I started reaching out to all of our Jewish friends and, you know, sending messages. And yeah, I know it's Shabbat, but, you know, still yeah. trying to be respectful, but yet still wanting to make sure everybody's safe. And I know that they're safe on this end, at least personally, you know, from a law enforcement perspective, you know, I know that we have pretty good connections with law enforcement and I know we're always pretty good on checking on all of that, but more importantly, checking on their, their emotional, their mental safety. Right. And, and that's the first flood of emotions that I had. And then very quickly after the second set of emotion is God, I hope it wasn't a Muslim. And, you know, rabbi and I have had right before this happened, you know, right before I took off a week ago, a week ago, we had lunch together and we were both having this conversation of every time there's some sort of an attack. Unfortunately, the first thing we both feel like is God, please don't let it be somebody from our tribe or whatever it is. Right. Maybe in a different order, but it's, it's usually in my case, don't let it be a Jew and then don't let it be a Muslim. Yep. Yep. You may have a different order. But. No, 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 no. I mean, it's, I mean, vice versa, right? Yeah. And, and it's it's the other in the in our midst. Absolutely, absolutely. We, we don't need that finger pointing. We don't need that. Absolutely, that, an additional layer of blame, yes. pain, trauma. Because the amount of anti-Semitism that we've been facing for the past four, five plus years that has just been ridiculously on the rise, and Islamophobia that we've been facing mm-hmm. has just been crazy. You know, we saw what happened at the Tree of Life, and then shortly after, we saw what happened at Church Christ, right? And so, you know, as somebody who I truly feel like they're my brothers and sisters, right, in my community, they when I say they're my interfaith family, I truly mean that. And so their well-being is always at the forefront to make sure. And then just as soon as I could, I came in to check on them personally to make sure I know they're physically okay, but still inside of me. I still can't help feeling guilty and, you know, wanting to make sure I know it wasn't me. I know it wasn't, you know, anything that my faith teaches. I know there's a large component of mental illness there and and we're seeing these things, right? You're the one that pointed out to me just the week before he came into an Islamic center and was ranting and, and the assailant was removed from the Islamic center. And so we know that component is there, but still making sure that my friends are safe, you know, that's, that's at the top of my list. And so it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Rabbi, did you, did you have like also pretty immediately think about your own security practices here at, at, you know, at at your house of worship? Did you begin to go through your checklist or did that cross your mind? It's interesting. And Elliot, we were just speaking earlier about this, that it's, it's, constantly in the forefront of our mind, security in our community. Every Friday night, every Saturday morning, every time we've got a large group of people, I'm constantly being concerned about security. Uh, Thank God I've got very good relationships with local law enforcement. Mm. And we are always certain to have a police presence when we have a a gathering of of people because hopefully we don't need them, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. But your security practices both here... And at the temple and at the federation, I would say, are, are, are excuse me, at the synagogue, are kind of at the forefront of when I look at houses of worship and their security. You know, you have to be buzz 
to be let in. Cameras are looking at who's coming in. Mm-hmm. And once you come in, you know, there's always a receptionist or whatnot. And even though those are in, in place, you have greeters when you have these events. Mm-hmm. And so you have people who are very welcoming, but yet vigilant. And Chris and I had this conversation. I attended his Sunday the week before last, right? Yeah, and two so weeks, two weeks three, ago, two weeks I attended ago, yeah. church mm-hmm. at, at Chris's church. And again, there was a gentleman that walked in and, and, you know, nobody knew who he was, but as we were conversing about, he saw somebody that was new to his congregation, wasn't quite sure, you know, what to make of him and greeters were there and things like that. Those practices are excellent. And yet I think we still have to have ongoing training for houses of worship because as we see time and time and time and time again, there's always signs and sometimes we miss those. Yeah. So I think sure. training our houses of worship, not just our clergy, but our lay leaders, the people who are in charge of some of that security, our houses of worship are supposed to be welcoming places. So of course we don't want a military type police presence there. However, we still have to make sure everybody's safe. So I think this opens a topic to a larger conversation you of bet. security in our houses of worship and how do we achieve that? I will add, and we started to allude to it just a moment ago in our conversation, that, Elia, as you were reaching out to your, as you call it, interfaith family and reaching out to your people to make certain that everybody was safe and and healthy and okay, Mm -hmm. I will tell you that Saturday, Sunday, and then in the days that followed, I have, I'm reassured as a spiritual leader in the Tulsa community as a rabbi in the Tulsa community, the outreach that I received from not only the interfaith community, but local law enforcement at all different levels, federal law enforcement mm-hmm. at different mm-hmm. levels that I have relationships with, my phone was was lighting up for days. And that's important in the sense that we know we're not alone. Right. Absolutely. And we know that we are valued and considered which mm-hmm. is very different than other communities. So this is yeah. this is ta- this is speaking highly to uh, Tulsa. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I I I echo you know your sentiments on that. I can't tell you how many of my colleagues have shared in different forms online and other places mm-hmm. that they feel very much alone in their respective communities because mm-hmm. they don't have those because connections. Because they have not had the outreach mm-hmm. and the support from the non-Jewish community. Well, and I think that goes back to the bridge building, right? We've always said bridge building is so important mm-hmm. because in in peaceful times, when we have those connections already made, it makes it so much easier for us to reach out to you over a text message or a phone call or whatever. I can jump in the car and come over here and check on you. I know you well enough. You're a, little, a brother of mine, right? And so those what we invest in those bridges that we build ahead of time, God forbid when these type of scenarios or at these type of events happen, we're right there, right? We're ready to go. And, and even with our law enforcement, you know, we have a good community relation with our law enforcement from the federal level on down to where we're able to get in touch with each other and say, Hey, you know, you and I had that conversation and you, you had some concerning call that came in that didn't include, that wasn't about your community. It was about my community. And right away, you know, you said you reached out to law enforcement. You know, I'm so grateful that we have those bridges built that we could do that. Absolutely. What we're told is in the unpacking of the story that happens 
after the event is is over mm-hmm. and you get to hear the the accounts and I heard that rabbi speak to how they got out of the building mm-hmm. and and he credits as well as one of the other congregants credit the training that they had gone through uh, simulated active shooter training mm-hmm. and they followed that to a T and that's what they attribute to them being unharmed coming out of there and f- and following that that sort of protocol so they had at least had some of that training and, and talked about that goes beyond whether you had a security guard there on duty. I mean, that, it's like, what can you do in right. that kind of a situation? Sure. And and then I also don't want to dismiss the fact that as the local law enforcement and FBI were setting up their camp at a middle school, I'm told, just down the road, at the other end of the road was a Catholic church. And there, the imams and... Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Protestant uh, mm-hmm. pastors yeah. and the yeah and the and the priests they were all gathered there doing their own kind of work of support. So there, some of that framework was in place, and that that matters in those moments. It matters a lot. It absolutely absolutely matters. absolutely it goes back to those bridges that I was talking about having those bridges built. Because you know when I heard an interview with the Imam Amor Suleiman you know, on MSNBC, and he was talking about how they've already had these bridges built for a while. And so to him, this was his brothers being basically attacked, brothers and sisters being attacked in, in the synagogue and so, or temple. And it, it's absolutely, yeah. It, but again, it goes back to that relationship building and it, it makes it on a whole nother level. When you personally know, God forbid something like that happen here or at your house mm-hmm. of worship. I can't even imagine something like that happening to people who I deeply care about. Right. Right. That, that takes it up a whole nother level. So. When I walk into a, it's going to sound strange that I'm speaking in this, in these terms, but when I walk into a house of worship, into a sacred space, when I walk into a sanctuary, one of the first things that I'm doing is looking for an exit. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's, I don't know if it's ingrained in me or my training, Mm -hmm. It's the what if, mm-hmm. and where where am I going to position myself to do that? And we shouldn't, you know, in in a in a better world, in a true world, we shouldn't have to worry about where the exits are. In a sanctuary. In a sanctuary. In a house of worship. I mean, Absolutely. It, I mean, doesn't doesn't that term itself, sanctuary, mm-hmm. imply a safe space? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And. And I mean, I, I don't know. Is, is that something similar that you two go through when you walk into, oh, sure. a, into a, a church Absolutely. Or, or a, a Absolutely. That's the first thing I look at is where are the exits. And then depending on if it's the first time I've been there, or if I've been there multiple times, how I'm sitting, I want to make sure I'm like back to a wall and seeing ev- all the entrances so I can kind of visibly scan who's coming in and what's going on and things like that. And it, I hate to be paranoid, but, yeah. but well, we see... What's going on? You know, we live in a world where we have to be hyper vigilant. It isn't paranoia you know? if it's really. Yeah, <laughs> right. And and unfortunately, a piece of cloth puts a target on quite literally sure. on my head. Yeah, right. As you wear a kippah, it puts, you know, a target quite literally on your head. And, you know, not to dismiss what our Christian brothers and sisters go through, but as a Muslim and as a Jew living uh, in, it's a different in this country. Thing. It's a minority it's a position. It's, level. Yeah, it's a bet. whole nother level. Position. Yeah. And I can't tell you on how many times I've been attacked just purely because I had a piece of cloth on my head. Right. People didn't know me from Adam. I didn't right. do anything and they decided to attack us. 
right? And so uh, it's unfortunate that we have to be hypervigilant. Sure, but the reasons matter. And and there's a reason in, in the intro I sort of brought up this anti-Semitism in this case because it's not like there aren't – there have been other shootings in Texas. There have been other – you know, so They've been at – and this is not a left versus right thing. No, it's because not. Because the churches that have been – Victims of shooting have have usually been much more conservative churches, but the reason behind that typically has been some sort of interpersonal, you know, there's somebody knows somebody in that congregation. Mm-hmm. And now there is something to be said about what has happened to our sense of sanctuary, and that is not a place even for the person who's willing to go to those links that you would go mm-hmm. to go to those links. So like you attack them somewhere else. So something about that has lost its sanctity in the culture, mm-hmm. and I don't know what that is, but reality is that there are differences in those attacks on houses of worship, and at some level it doesn't matter, and at some level it does. I would like to think when you've made the decision to take people hostage or to attack people or to kill people in a house of worship, you know, to some level I think there is— this person is not thinking straight. There's definitely a mental component there because I can't, can't fathom why somebody in their right mind of all places would target a house of worship. People who are there to pray to the almighty or, you know, who are supposed to be safe, who are, who are going there for comfort and refuge and, and things like that. I can't imagine why somebody in their right mind would attack people there. It just doesn't make sense to me. And so I, I, I guess I tried to comfort myself a little bit by saying, oh, there, there's, you know, there's got to be something else going on mentally for them not to even take that into consideration. I don't know. I just, maybe it's, maybe I'm just. No, naive. I don't think so. I think it brings up a, a really interesting theological question. Here we are, a Muslim, a Jew, and a Christian all of our traditions speak to the negative aspects of fear and that fear is not something that um, that brings us closer to joy or goodness or anything like that, quite the opposite. And so how do we, how do we as leaders in those communities help deal with something like this in a way that doesn't push people towards more fear? So, you know, another way that for me to think about it is just in terms of policy. So how do you how do you address the issue of people with guns in your congregation space or people potentially with guns in your congregation space and the danger that presents? Do, so do you solve that by introducing other people with different guns in that congregation space? Or is that just leaning into the fear in ways that it is, mm-hmm. is not helpful? Yeah. I mean, I've attended training for mega churches mm-hmm. where they have 10, 20,000 people in a church mm-hmm. and where they actually have, you know, the training was led by ex SWAT leaders, ex military right. leaders and where they have trained professionals who carry weapons. Yep. Right. But in those trainings, they've taught, if you're going to train lay leaders, the statistics show that lay leaders who don't have thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of training in shooting situations and scenarios end up shooting innocent people in those situations or the gun just going off accidentally and killing people accidentally. Right. So 
then how do you differentiate between, okay, these are our people who carry the guns and nobody else can bring their guns. And how do you deal with that? It's like, terrifying. Yeah. And then, and then coupled with the fact of when you have people in your house of worship who are triggered just by seeing weapons, right? If they were to see weapons, those people who are triggered because they might have had trauma in the past, in the past. right? Yeah. Or does that make them more fearful that, they're sitting in a room where somebody has weapons. It's interesting. Before moving to Tulsa, I served a congregation in a town outside of D.C., Washington, D.C., and many of the individuals in my congregation were government workers. I called it a lot of it alphabet soup mm-hmm. because we had FBI, CIA, DEA, ICE. Yep, all the alphabet. And they all had extensive training. Mm-hmm. Yet we wrestled as a congregational leadership mm-hmm. because just because two or three or four individuals who are trained and are carrying may not be trained with one another. Mm-hmm. And there could be crossfire and other situations. So we had to be very clear about mm-hmm. who's doing what and how. It's terrifying. It's terrifying well, to think that friendly fire could also cause a problem. Well, but you also have to remember you live in an open state where it's open carry. Uh, right? I try not it, to remember it, that. It, it, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you can you can walk into a store by with an assault rifle and you will be just fine. We've had That's right. you've seen last year, the year before, people with walking around with assault rifles and it's perfectly fine. Yeah, I watched a right? video on it and I know how to use it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right? It's right. on YouTube. And yeah. it's my constitutional right. That's great. But it terrifies the heck out of me to be anywhere near you with my children while you're carrying this thing that's t- almost as tall as me, a cannon. Like, why? Why? Why do you need that? I, I just don't. I, and I get it. I'm not I'm not trying to tramp on anybody's rights, but anywhere near a house of worship or in a house of worship. We're, it's supposed to be a safe zone for us. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just not the place. You know, t- shifting gears for just a little bit, reflecting back to just, just a few days ago where news accounts right after Colleysville incident in the day to follow, there were news accounts stating things like um, it was not a hate-filled incident. It was not a a Jewish or anti-Semitic incident. It was not focused at the congregation. It was an issue with dot, 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 dot. Really? And it was exactly that. It was exactly hate-filled. It was exactly anti-Semitic. And Chris, a moment ago, you were talking about fear Mm. and the negative aspects of fear. Isn't that exactly what hate is? Sure. It's just fear Manifesting itself in uh, misbehavior. Can mm-hmm. I say that? Mm-hmm. Whether Taking it's fear to the next level. Right. Whether it's anti Semitism or Islamophobia or any other ism. Yeah. <laughs> pick pick yeah. an ism. Yeah. Right. Um, when we don't understand or mm-hmm. are given misinformation about the other in our midst. Yep. Mm-hmm. Fear of what we don't know turns into hate. Right. That's why I say the fear of the other. And I always say this in all of our programs, trying to put a face to your other, right? That's why pre-COVID, we had as many programs as possible for people who literally are on different sides of the fence on multiple topics, Mm -hmm. came together to sit and have a conversation 
I can't tell you on how many occasions I've had conversations with people. And after a few years, after however long it takes for them to be comfortable with me, they come out and tell me, you know, I was really skeptical of you. I really didn't know what to make of you. You're a Muslim? Really? I mean, the things that people tell me. Yes. Yes. I've had this conversation about my, my dear neighbor across the street who's been living across from me for almost 14 years now and had no clue I was a Muslim. Go figure. But she's petrified of something. She keeps saying them in our conversation. She keeps, she kept referring to them. They're so scary. They're going to take over. She kept saying they, and at first I thought she was joking. I thought she was just being facetious. Two minutes into the conversation, I found out, no, this woman was dead serious. She was petrified of Muslims. She lived across from a family of Muslims who took care of her even after the death of her husband and had no clue that I was a Muslim, a practicing covered Muslim. She had no clue. She was fed so much misinformation. She didn't even know what a Muslim looked like, but she was petrified of them. Right. You know, what does a Muslim look like? I know. What do we look like? You know, <laughs> and that's the thing I tell people. I'm like, I'm sure if you've eaten an IHOP or Bill and Ruse, I guarantee you've wrapped apples with Muslims and you don't even know it. And it's the same thing with our Jewish community. You sit there and you make all these jokes and this and that and the other. Are, are you serious right now? Like, just putting that face to the fear. I think we struck fear. a chord with her. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Sorry. <laughs> Another rant. Pull, pull it back in. Pull it back in. Yeah, reining it back in. It yeah. brings, uh, it brings though, to mind that the need for, so we all agreed at the beginning of this, that building those bridges and having that sort of interfaith connectivity is what gave some, gave a safety net there in Colleyville. Absolutely. Uh, so how do we do that here? Like, I know we have that amongst some of us, mm-hmm. but that net can always be bigger and stronger. Absolutely. You know, so how is it that we try to achieve those those goals? How do we continue to work towards that sort of interaction and, and understanding? What are things that you have done? Rabbi and I are both, you know, relative newcomers. I'm here on my eighth year and you're here fourth, fourth year. year, right? So I've been here 44 years. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Which is crazy because you're only 28. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, right. How have you been here 44 years? <laughs> yeah. She's a grandmother. I am. Twice. Yes, I'm a nana. I love my babies. So. Yes. I know. My girls come at nana mom. That makes you sound old. I'm like, hey, I I love it. She's got to rein it in some more again. Nana. <laughs> we, we do a lot of good work with interfaith conversations. Mm-hmm. I mean, even, even in this conversation right here where we can sit and strangely enough laugh at some of the craziness mm. that we've seen. That helps in healing. That laughter is a wonderful way of healing. Absolutely. That helps in, in sharing in those issues. Also coming together as we do with TMM over shared issues of justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Issues that may not directly affect any one of us, mm-hmm. but affect humanity and the human condition. Absolutely. That I think is a way that we can build these bridges mm-hmm. and realize that we are all developed in the image of whatever form of the, of the deity mm-hmm. that we understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 a, it's a common thread in every single one of our faiths and every single faith. It's a common thread to love your neighbor, to, to mm-hmm. love one another, to mm-hmm. work one, with one another. Right. And it's not just when we see violence. Mm-mm. I mean, a few years ago, one of the houses of worship here burnt down. 
literally was burnt down to the ground. Mm -hmm. And it was an internal fire that was set. And within a few hours, when we found out it happened, we got together as a congregation. We found them a replacement congregation that they are still staying in. It's been, what, two, three years now since that's happened. 2019. Mm -hmm. It was 2019 when it happened. And several of us went to that Sunday. We attended church with them in their parking lot in front of the building that was burnt down. If you remember, we were supposed to have a TMM dinner with police, you know, with the police Mm -hmm. cadets at their house of worship the next day, but the fire happened and you were gracious enough to open your house of worship Mm -hmm. for us to host them here. Mm -hmm. And everybody just did a fundraiser for them here. And we collected money for their congregation here during that dinner. If you remember, Uh, right. I was there. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's just, you know, well, if you were there and do you remember maybe two separate things, it was three years ago. Yeah. So, I, it was you know, way pre. That's when we could have dinners together. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. But, but or even like the conversation the three of us were having right before we we hit cord about the work that TMM is doing with Afghan refugees mm-hmm. and that we are bringing congregations and communities together in the support of the other. In this case, yeah. this new group of people, this new community that's making their way to Tulsa. And that new community has created some newness. We've got partners in this work that we have not partnered with ever in, in any other thing. So there's, yeah. there's a way that reaching out, as you were suggesting earlier, Rabbi, that, that working together for the common good, the good of other people that aren't our yeah. people, but they're other people. And then we all work together and, and that both benefits the, the folks who are coming in who need that help. And it begins to create bridges that, that didn't exist otherwise. I mean, there's a, yep. there's a, a great, I think, tradition to latch on to, to have us, our, here's our shameless plug for Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry that, that says we, we don't, we don't have to, to like. believe alike to love alike, right? right. So, so we go do the work of love, of loving our neighbor, and that transcends the ways that we don't believe the same things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm so comforted to know that I can walk into any of your houses of worship anytime and I don't feel like a stranger. And, you know, as a Muslim that prays five times a day, I've prayed in your church. I've prayed at your temple mm. and I feel completely at home. And this isn't a mosque, but I still feel very connected to the almighty in this house of worship, in your house of worship, in any house of worship, because we've built those bridges. And I, you know, and I truly feel welcomed and loved and cared for. So obviously the three of us get along very well. <laughs> now what about the rest of the community? That's exactly, you stole where I was going to go. But no, what do we sorry. do? What do we do with the rest of Tulsa's greater community? I will say it's growing. Oh, our, our, our bridges are being built and where these bridges are extending Right. As we extend our table, like we bringing more people to the table where our bridges are growing. And as Chris alluded to earlier, we're working with people on new projects that we never worked with before. Or we would have not thought that we would ever be able to work with before. Right. Right. So, Reverend Moore, I'm going to go in a different Mm -hmm. direction. And this was something I was thinking about a moment ago. I know that I have in professional and personal settings multiple times had conversations around the what if that we were talking about earlier Mm -hmm. regarding security. What if you're on the pulpit during a service and you as the spiritual leader, me as the rabbi, I see someone coming through the door wielding a gun. 
what are you going to do? That's the question, right? Mm -hmm. Are those conversations that you have within your professional community and within your own church? Definitely. Is 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 there an element of that fear in your house of worship as well? There is. It's been interesting to, we, we had that debate. So, so again, uh, Ali alluded to this earlier. So the timing of all of this um, has brought this conversation up again. So we, yep. we have, we had that conversation pre COVID about security plans and what we wanted to do. We were doing some renovation in the sanctuary mm-hmm. and Beautiful one sanctuary. of the, re- thank you. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons behind that was that we opened up space so we can actually see people approaching the building in in ways that we couldn't prior. And we now have security cameras in place that we didn't have before. And so that gave us some drive towards that. Right. Right. But that was all. And then, of course, we went into into online worship. So then we weren't even in that building, weren't using those things, weren't doing any of that stuff. Could use some money. Then we come back in person. (laughs) Then we come back in person and... As Alia was uh, alluding to earlier, a, a couple of weeks ago, um, right there during service, it was probably a third of the way through the service, somebody came in, somebody unfamiliar to us, somebody that it was clear to to me seeing that person walking in, that this person was coming in off the streets, likely looking for some, for some help, was living on the streets, sure. and an unhoused person. And, you know, we normally... Before we went back in person, we had this plan in place. So we had uh, we would have ushers, and ushers were trained, and this right. is what you would do, and all that stuff. This was a Sunday. It was super cold outside, and our attendance was way down. And we we kind of knew it would be. So we were at probably forty percent of what we normally are. Mm-hmm. And our one of our key people who keeps an eye out for those things, his husband was out sick. So he was in the AV booth. So he can't see around the corner to see who comes in. I had the line of sight. I had the line of sight and our ushers weren't there. We didn't have ushers that day. So what do you do? Right. So fortunately I did make eye contact with one of our other folks and she was already kind of looking at him and just kind of keeping an eye out. And, And eventually he got up during, we have a kind of a joys and concerns time. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's done what I call open mic, you know, so somebody, you can stand up and say, sure. you know, would you pray for me for this? And, and he kind of went off a little bit of a rant about things. And, and I mean, wasn't aggressive, but just was not making a lot of sense. Yeah, something to share. And so, yeah. And so one of our other folks went back and we have a couple of people who were trained. And so they went back and sat and talked with him and it all, it all worked out fine. And there was no threat, but what if the weekend after that Mm -hmm. is Colleyville. And so Mm. the conversations that my folks had have, have changed a lot Mm -hmm. about, okay, well, we really do want to do this. Now the interesting thing from my perspective Mm -hmm. is that they, there were some in the congregation who really lifting up that we were, that we, you know, we had more work to do as far as that's concerned. And so my perspective, I'm like, when do you know that you're done with that? Like, when do you feel like, do you, is that something that you have to constantly sort of look at and revamp and retrain and do all of these things? Or is it enough just to have a plan in place and then you kind of hope for the best. 
I, I think it has to be like muscle memory. I think you have to keep training and keep at it. And I would rather be over-prepared than under in a uh, situation like that. I think if we don't, we grow complacent. We mm-hmm. get lazy. You know, I think of the individuals I know in law enforcement who are constantly training, constantly yeah. going to the range to make mm-hmm. sure that they can fire appropriately. Physical training. And, right. And yep. You well, have to continue to practice. Okay, and I appreciate that. Yeah. But I also know... Like, that's not the level of, so at what point are we crossing over into the people that, 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 who are our ushers or who are part of our security team, whatever we call that, does church now, is is that no longer a sanctuary for them because they are on constant? Yes. I think there's a balance though between, obviously, I mean, I'm I'm using the the law enforcement training as an extreme example. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's enough to have one conversation or uh, a yeah, guest or speaker, a guest speaker one afternoon over coffee to talk about scenarios, yeah. and that's it. I think it needs to be a regular practice within our houses of worship. When I right. say regular, I'm not saying mm-hmm. weekly or or monthly, but maybe a couple times a year, a few times yeah. a year, to refresh and to be up on the latest and greatest of what's out there, because there is regularly new and innovative things that, that are being learned and mm-hmm. those need to be shared. Absolutely. I agree with you. And I again, I think also part of it is just that we, we can go through a period of time where things are nice, things are easy, things are safe, and then we gain a false sense of security. Mm-hmm. And that's when we let our guard down and that's when problems will arise. But I also do hear what Chris is saying, like, it's sad that the place that we go to for comfort, for yep. sanctuary, we still have to be vigilant. Oh, of course. You I mean, know? That's, that's, yeah. that's the irony It's like irony coming in the back name. home yeah. and you still, this is your home. You're supposed to be, this is your home away from home, right? Your sanctuary, yeah. your house of worship. Yeah. You're supposed to your feel place comfortable. Your place of peace, right? Your piece of peace. Yeah, exactly. Your safe space. Yeah. Especially in a house of worship. Well, Again, I keep reiterating that, but especially in as a sacred space in a house of worship for violence to take place in a house of worship. I don't know. I, I just keep saying, well, this is the time we live in. It's well, unfortunate. Even, even thinking about, you, you use that example of our home and this is mm-hmm. an extension of our home, but how many of us, gosh, going back probably to the 1970s started putting alarm systems on our homes. Yep. Now any one of us can get a wireless Wi-Fi alarm system mm-hmm. for no expense mm-hmm. that we can install ourselves stream to our phones. Yeah. Right. Yep. And how many times do I see what's that, uh, that neighborhood app next door? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody's talking about somebody hopped my fence and somebody was stole my yep. packages and mm-hmm. somebody was breaking in and that's our home. Yep. And if we're arming yeah. and protecting our homes in that way, how do we need to arm and protect our house of worship? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think of it when we were growing up in the, 80s as kids like get home from school hop on your bike go outside go play Uh no worry about it Mm -hmm. and then come back home before it's dark Mm -hmm. and as my kids were growing up in the late 90s and early 2000s early on it was okay but as more and more things were happening in our neighborhood I wouldn't even let them in the front of the house without me being outside or my husband being outside Mm -hmm. and 
you know, people used to leave their garage door open. Well, you know how many times burglars or attackers have come in through their house because people used to leave their, you can't leave that open. You can't leave your front door unlocked anymore. Right. You can't even not lock your door in your car because a carjacker can come and get to you in your vehicle while you're driving. So you know? why would we leave the entrance to our houses of worship unlocked? <laughs> For hours. Yes. If we're not going to leave the entrance to our own home. Okay, so here's the here is a more provocative. We're going question. down an interesting rabbit hole. That's here. right. Oh, oh, we can go down this rabbit hole. Here's oh, a yeah. more provocative question for you, which is, if so, here's the here's a provocative question, which is, you mentioned Nextdoor mm-hmm. as one of the apps, and and one of the other things about Nextdoor that a lot of people criticize it for is the level of racism present in Nextdoor. Mm-hmm. That next door, oh, there, I saw a black person in my neighborhood. Oh, I saw. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's another level of training for our houses of worship, which is the person who came in a couple of weeks ago to my church did not need security teams. He did not need to be. He was not a threat. Mm-hmm. He needed help. Mm-hmm. He needed a good, healthy Christian response to him from my congregation. Okay. Right? And so how do you discern... How do you do the deeper level of training that helps you discern between an other, a stranger who comes in, which is supposed to be the people that we are to welcome, and somebody who potentially can do you harm or is a threat? We'll circle back around to the incident that happened this past weekend in, in uh, Colleyville. Uh, Rabbi Citron Walker, uh, according to what I've read and heard mm-hmm. from interviews, a gentleman approached the front door of his, the entrance to his building, to the temple, mm-hmm. knocked, and he opened the door and saw here was a person he thought was in need, Right, welcomed this person in, right, prepared a cup of tea for him, and used that as an opportunity to ask probing questions. Right. To which, according to an interview that I saw with the rabbi, the answers didn't quite... Yeah, started Line giving up. him some red flags. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? one of those that His didn't spidey quite, sense was going yeah, off. Yeah, it didn't smell mm-hmm. right. Right. And what do you do in that situation? Mm. Because I, I don't know about, about you, Reverend, but I often encounter individuals that spidey sense doesn't, doesn't register all right. Mm-hmm. There's something that's just not right. And you used an example of a person that was looking for help. Mm-hmm. And they may trigger your your senses in a specific way, but it's not, it's not a trigger that's going to cause a response of fear, but a response of help and support. Right. So, you know, it's interesting. These are things they don't teach you in seminary. So how do we, how do we help people? No, they don't. How do we help people learn to develop that gut sense, how to develop that spidey sense, right? So that they can, because I did have spidey sense going off with him, but it wasn't, it wasn't threat. Right. Right. It was, I'm going to have to approach this guy differently because he certainly sees the world differently than I see the world. I mean, that's yeah, the, that's I, I the nice that way your, to see that. As I walked in with my friend and my daughter that morning for service, I saw you. You were like locked on. And I was like, is he sure or not? Just, just knowing you, 
Yeah, I was like, what's he looking at? What's going on? Well, you know, just so, in, inside of me, I was like, some. That's, right. That's yeah. what I was, yeah. I was like, holy cow. <laughs> Which I knew more than half of the people in the sanctuary was hilarious. <laughs> and so my Christian friend who I brought for the first time with me to attend church was like, know you. I was like, yeah, can you tell I frequent this church? <laughs> you know, but it is just. How do we, how do we train our spidey sense? That it's, it's, sense? A, and it's a real question. How do we yeah. approach it so that we are approaching individuals from a place of love, a place of right. valuing right. human life and not right. approaching them all from a place of fear and mistrust. Right. Mm-hmm. In, in the same way. There are other people that have caused us to live in a place of fear and mistrust. Well, yes. I, mean, I just shared with you a little while ago. A few years back, we had a lady that was off of her medication. She was having a schizophrenic break mm-hmm. and she had a weapon with her. Mm-hmm. And I encountered her in a room when she, yes, when she had children cornered, a small little bitty lady, a mother, and her three children cornered and she had a weapon in her hand. I had to talk this woman down to be able to get her out of the building. And this was during Ramadan, the most busiest time on right. a weekend. It's right. always the busiest time. For two hours, I had to talk this woman till I got her to walk outside of the campus. As everybody is trying to call 911 and trying to get a response, the COPE's team even arrived and they couldn't get out of the car until law enforcement arrived. And I had an altercation with her on the main street in front of the mosque with a weapon, right? Like, what do you do with that? Right. And this was a lady who we know who has been with the congregation right. for a sure. while, but she was just off her meds and needed help, but she's wielding a weapon. Yep. Right. Well, and help looks different in, in exactly. different situations. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So uh, you can't you endanger other people in giving this person help. Yes. So it's a, it's a challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's challenge. a challenge. We have to ask the same questions that we ask. We do all of this as people of faith. Uh-huh. So we have to a- ask this from a faithful perspective. What what does our tradition tell us about how we encounter and how we deal with fear? Ultimately, we're uh-huh. back to that same question. Like, how do we, do, I'm not, nobody, I can't tell somebody to not be afraid. Uh-huh. Uh, that's yeah. not possible. I'm afraid at times. And, and fear was one of the emotions on that day with a person coming in because it's the unknown. You don't uh-huh. know how how things are going to go. So fear is always there. And the question is, how will we act out of that? Yeah. Very much like I would tell people, we, we're not going to approach our budget like, like a corporation would approach its budget. Sure. We have a different approach for that, a different mm-hmm. set of values, different set yep. of mm-hmm. boundaries. And the same thing is true. I'm not arguing against the need for policies and security, but how we do that really matters. Absolutely. So the challenge that I'm seeing, we've been talking together now for probably close to an hour. And I thought for sure that we would solve all the problems of the world in this hour. Yes, in this hour, didn't you? Well, we still have, I mean, there's about seven minutes probably. But I, I don't think we A rabbi, we are, a pastor, and LA leader, yes. I don't think we're any closer to to coming to any conclusions. We, we, I think we all come to an agreement that we agree that, that these are difficult. We need difficult. to do something, yes. We agree we need time. to do something. We agree that it's difficult What is that times. something? Yes. Well, I think we know on the small scale what that something is, is the work that we continue training, to do. Right. Working together, having the conversations, building the bridges. Strengthening those bridges. relationships. And, it, and it, you know, it's little changes, little by little by little, until we look back over time and go, wow, look how far we've come. That's right. But... 
Well, I think a, it's a terrifying world out there. I think building those bridges also, because I've seen instances of where we've built bridges. I've encountered, you know, a gentleman who really did not like Muslims and he was very, very hateful. And when he came at me with this, with his derogatory remarks and whatnot, we started having conversations and, and I was answering him with smart aleck answers and laughing and trying to make light of his situation as he's coming at me. And, you know, after having about an hour long conversation, little by little, you know, breaking it down and fast forward three months. Now this guy is the security guard at the mosque. Right. And so Wait, he came to the situation as he came because he Muslim. Yes. And now he's working for the mosque as a security guard. Yeah. He's, yeah, been the, he's one of the most been, dedicated people there. He has been the security guard well now played. for seven years. <laughs> well yeah. Played. Yeah. This is the same guy who asked me why I support ISIS, right. why I was wearing pants, why I was speaking on a cell phone. I probably drive to why do I hate Jesus? Right. These were all questions that were asked to me. Wait, I'm stuck with the. Never mind. The yeah. pants thing. To which yeah. I responded, why yeah. do you support the KKK? Right. Which I didn't know he used to be a former KKK member. Oh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really good one, Aaliyah. Yeah. You were trying Stick to be smart, Alec. Right. Yeah, I was trying to be a smart Alec. But <laughs> well he, he told me that KKK wasn't a Christian organization. And I told him I begged to differ. I said, when the KKK marched 30,000 strong down Pennsylvania Avenue with 70 foot tall crosses and a cross on every single hood, you tell me how that's not a Christian organization. I said, luckily, I know the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I know that his teachings have nothing to do with the KKK. However, you still can't tell me that they don't think that they're a Christian organization. So things like that. Yes. But again, I take that back to building those bridges, right? Yes. Building those bridges. There you go. See, you, you started it. You got her. Don't get her talking. I mean, she's, (laughs) so it sounds like we need to have at least one more episode so that we can resolve. We can resolve all the world's problems. Probably in two hours. In two hours. In two hours. We're definitely going to need food then. (laughs) I'll bring it. Don't you worry. (laughs) Yet yet another thing that our traditions have in common. Food. Food. Well, thanks, uh, Rabbi. Thank you for being. I'm honored uh, to be a part of this inaugural. I'm honored to be a part of your 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 interfaith family. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for being a part of my interfaith family. I'm honored to be a part of TMM and all the work that that we're able to do together. Absolutely. We're so grateful we have you on the board and we have your support and your friendship most of all. Thanks for joining us. Intersections is recorded throughout the city of Tulsa, an estate which was once home to the Apache, Arapaho, Caddo, Comanche, Kiowa, Osage, and Wichita tribes. Tulsa now sits on the boundaries of the Muscogee, Cherokee, and Osage nations. Thank you for joining us for Intersections, a production of the Tulsa Metropolitan Ministry. Intersections is produced and edited by Ramp 9 Productions and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts.